Now we are right into the kingdom split. We have dealt with the first king of Judah, which is Rehoboam, and the first king of Israel, who is Jeroboam. Now the prophet's going to start moving machine gun very quickly through the next series of kings. We stay in Judah. Chapter 15, verse 1. In the 18th year, the reign of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, Abijah, became the king over Judah. He ruled for three years in Jerusalem. Remember, long life is a blessing of God. Now, that's not always guarantee, but a short life is usually a guarantee that God is judging you. Long life can either be God blessing you or God just trying to hurt and judge his people even more by having a really corrupt king reign for a long time. But dying young and dying quickly is definitely a judgment of God. His mother's name was Ma'akah, the daughter of Absalom, and he followed all the sinful practices of his father before him. He was not wholeheartedly devoted to Yahweh, his God, as his ancestor David had been. Now in that chart, the very bottom on the back side, there's a key. And the key will again give you the idea. So a, a, the star means that they were a godly king. No, the asterisk, not a, well, I mean a star, but technically it's an asterisk. The asterisk shows you that they're a king. The plus sign shows that their reign overlapped with their father or their son in some kind of way. If you count up the amount of asterisks, there's not a whole lot of them. Nevertheless, for David's sake, Yahweh his God maintained his dynasty in Jerusalem by giving him a son to succeed him and by protecting Jerusalem. Now that's huge. Because Jeroboam did evil, and God says, I'm wiping out your house. Rehoboam and Abijah did evil, and God should have said, I'm going to wipe your house, but he's going to honor his promises in the Davidic covenant. The only thing that keeps Judah from being their house being wiped out is the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel chapter 7. The only thing that keeps God from wiping out the house of Judah is his faithfulness to them not theirs to him. He did this because David had done what he approved and had not disregarded any of his commandments his entire lifetime except for the incident involving Uriah the Hittite. Rehoboam and Jeroboam were continually at war with each other throughout Abijah's lifetime. And the rest of the events of Abijah's reign, including all of his accomplishments, are recorded in the scroll called the Annals of the Kings of Judah. Abijah and Jeroboam had been at war with each other, and Abijah passed away and was buried in the city of David. His son Asa replaced him as king. So God didn't really have a lot to say about him. Chapter 15, verse 9. We're still in Judah. In the 20th year, Jeroboam's reign over Israel... Asa became king over Judah. He ruled for 41 years in Jerusalem. His grandmother's name was Ma'akah, daughter of Absalom. And Asa did what, was, what Yahweh approved, like his ancestor David had done. So he's a godly king. He removed the male cultic prostitutes from the land and got rid of all the disgusting idols his ancestors had made. He also deposed his own grandmother, Ma'akah, from her position as queen, who made the loathsome Asherah pole. And he cut down that Asherah pole and burned it in the Kidron Valley. So his mother seems to have been a priestess of Asherah and was a big promoter of all this stuff. And Abijah, his dad, followed in that steps, 
but he even deposed his own grandmother and put her out of power because she was ungodly. So that says something about his righteousness. He brought the holy items that he had made for his father and made them in Yahweh's temple, including the silver and gold and the articles. Oh, sorry, I knew I had skipped something. Verse 14, however, the high places were not eliminated. Yet, Asa was wholeheartedly devoted to Yahweh throughout his lifetime. So, what you're going to see is, even with the really godly kings of Judah, it will keep saying, however, they did not remove the high places. They just can't seem to get that worship God in one place and one place only. No matter how godly they are, they still can't localize Yahweh to one place. He brought in the holy items that he and his father had made into Yahweh's temple, including the silver, gold, and the articles. So he tried to restore the glory of the temple. Verse 16, now Asa and King Baasha of Israel. Now we haven't gotten to Baasha yet. He's coming later. But Baasha is the king who's going to replace Nadab in the next when we go, so Nadab is the son of Jeroboam. He's reigning right now. But during Asa's reign, Nadab has died, and he's replaced by his son, Baasha. Baasha will be talked about by the author next, but he's briefly mentioning him because of how he affects the king of Judah, Asa, and the south. Now, Asa and King Baasha of Israel were continually at war with each other. King Baasha of Israel attacked Judah and established Ramah as a military outpost to prevent anyone from leaving or entering the land of the king, um, anyone leaving and entering the land of King Asa of Judah. Ramah is up there in the north. It's just slightly above Judah. And so he fortified a huge city with tons of garrison to prevent anybody from coming in his territory from Judah. Basically, he's also controlling all the trade routes into Judah. So he's basically got Judah by the neck. And Asa is is suffering economically big time because of this. Verse 18, Asa took all the silver and the gold that was left in the treasuries of Yahweh's temple and the royal palace and handed it over to his servants. He then told them to deliver it to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tabramon, the son of Hazan, the king of Syria, ruler in Damascus, along with this message. So Ben-Hadad is the current king in Aram. Ben-Hadad is not necessarily his personal name, but a title that he has as king, like king, pharaoh, or Caesar. I want to make a treaty with you, like the one our fathers made. See, I have sent you silver and gold as a present. Break your treaty with King Baasha of Israel, so he will retreat from my land. Ben-Hadad accepted King Asa's offer and ordered his army commanders to attack the seas of Israel. And they conquered Aijan, Dan, Abel, Beth, Ma'akah, and all the territory of Naphtali, including the region of Kermeth. When Baasha heard the news, he stopped fortifying Ramah, settled down Tirzah, and King Asa ordered all the men of Judah... No exemptions were granted to carry away the stones and the wood that Baasha had used to build Ramah. King Asa used the materials to build up Geba and Benjamin and Mizpah. Now, what mistake did he make? He made a treaty with a pagan nation to defend him. The very silver and gold that he put into Yahweh's temple as an offering to Yahweh, he then took back out of the temple to pay a pagan king 
to attack Israel and to protect them. He's not going to God. He's not going to God to help. He is a godly king overall, but he made a serious mistake in his life. And it was ironic here is he's paying the king of Aram, Ben-Hadad, to break his treaty with Israel because he's outbidding Baasha, the king of Israel. What in the world makes him think that that will not happen to him? What if Baasha comes into tons of money and outbids him and the treaty gets broken and Iran now starts attacking him again? This whole treaty making is dumb. The minute you start a treaty by paying somebody to break another treaty, they're not trustworthy. But yet that's not the way they think. That's not the way that they're thinking. The rest, verse 23, the rest of the events of Asa's reign, including all of his successes and accomplishments, as well as a record of the cities that he built, are recorded in the scroll called the Annals of the Kings. Yet when he was very old, he developed a foot disease. Asa passed away and was buried in his ancestor's city of the ancestor David. His son Jehoshaphat replaced him as king. Now, why that foot disease mention? It's a judgment for the treaty that he made. God told you very clearly in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, if you do not trust me and you disobey me, then I will afflict diseases upon you. And as the king who blatantly disobeyed God made a treaty with a pagan nation, trust in him instead of Yahweh, he's inflicted with a foot disease. Now, for most of us, you would think, well, that's not really that bad. I can handle a little athlete's foot at the end of my life in some corns. But remember, a foot disease can be, I mean, a disease in the hand, the feet, it can, be, it can be painful. And some people are in excruciating pain all the time. And this is a culture where people walk everywhere. They wear sandals and dusty Dirty streets with manure everywhere, which is going to increase infection when you already have skin on your feet that's open and sores and that kind of stuff. And you're walking everywhere. There are no lazy boys. There are no, like, Japanese fish eating at your feet. There's nothing. You're in a harsh foot traffic territory where infection can sit at any moment. And that would be horrible because in the ancient world, kings are supposed to walk with great dignity and power and strides. And if he's got a foot disease that's crippling him, that's going to be devastating. Think of FDR. Even in our day period where we don't think disease is a judgment from God, and we don't think that a disease, like some people do, even he hit his polio. When he was like getting interviewed, that kind of stuff, he made sure that he was always behind tables and that kind of stuff. And everybody knew he had it. But he still did not want the image of a president being weak. And it would. It probably would have affected people, even in our enlightened time period. This is going to seriously affect him and the way that people see him. So this is a huge judgment from God for his disobedience. Now we go back to Israel in the north. Chapter 15, verse 25. In the second year of Asa's reign over Judah, Jeroboam son Nadab, became king over Israel. He ruled Israel for two years. He did evil in the sight of Yahweh. He followed in his father's footsteps and encouraged Israel to sin. Baasha, son of Ahijah, not Ahijah the prophet, a different Ahijah, from the tribe of Ishakar. Ahijah the prophet was from Shilonite. Ahijah, his father, was a Issachar. 
He conspired against Nadab and assassinated him in Gibeathon, which was in Philistine territory. This happened while Nadab and all the Israelite army were besieging Gibeathon. But Asha killed him in the third year of Asa's reign over Judah and replaced him as king. When he became king, he executed all of Jeroboam's entire family. He killed, he wiped out everyone who breathed, just as Yahweh had predicted through his servant Ahijah, the Shilonite. This happened because of the sins which Jeroboam committed and which he made Israel commit. These sins angered Yahweh, God of Israel. The rest of the events of Nadab's reign, including his accomplishments, are recorded in the scrolls called the Annals of the Kings of Israel, Ace of the King of Nadab. Israel were continually at war with each other. So Baasha comes in. He's a different dynasty. Okay? Jeroboam came from the tribe of Ephraim, which means his son Nadab is Ephraimite. But Baasha is an Issachar. He is not called by God to be king. And he rises, raises, he's the first king that has not been called by God. He comes into power, he's the general, and he wipes out the entire family of Jeroboam. He massacres them all, all the males. The narrator tells you this is in fulfillment of the prophecy of God, which means he did fulfill the prophecy of God, but he was never commanded by God to do it. Now hold on to that. We're going to get back to that when we get to Baasha. So he takes power. Chapter 15:33. In the third year of Asa's reign over Judah, Baasha, son of Ahijah, became king over all of Israel and Tirzah. He ruled for 24 years. He did evil in the sight of Yahweh. He followed in Jeroboam's footsteps and encouraged Israel to sin. Now remember, following in Jeroboam's footsteps means also the golden calf worship. Jehu, son of Hanai, received from Yahweh this message predicting Baasha's downfall. So Jehu is another prophet. I raised you up from the dust and made you rule over my people Israel. That's the same way he started his prophecy against Jeroboam. Yet you followed in Jeroboam's footsteps. Encourage my people Israel to sin. Their sin have made me angry. So I am ready to burn up the Baasha's and his family and make your family like that of the family of Jeroboam, son of Ba. Dogs will eat the members of Baasha's family who die in the city and birds of the sky will eat the ones who die in the country. So Baasha is so evil, he's going to reap the same judgment that Jeroboam did. His entire house is going to be wiped out. His entire house is going to be exterminated. Verse 5, the rest of the events of Baasha's reign, including the accomplishments and successes, are recorded in the scroll called the Annals of the Kings of Israel. Baasha passed away and was buried in Tirzah. His son Ella replaced him as king. The prophet Jehu, son of Hanai, received from Yahweh the message predicting the downfall of Baasha and his family. Because of all the evil Baasha had done in the sight of Yahweh, his actions angered Yahweh, including the way that he had destroyed Jeroboam's dynasty. So this family ended up like Jeroboam. It is here that the author mentions, oh, by the way, Jehu's judgment against him was not just for his evil, but for wiping out the entire family of Jeroboam. Now this presents a conundrum, because the question is, wait a minute, God, if you prophesied that the entire house of Jeroboam is supposed to be wiped out, 
and Baasha does that, and that fulfills your prophecy, isn't that a good thing? And the answer is no. Because Yahweh prophesied the destruction of Jeroboam. But he could have used any king. He could have used Aram. He could have used Egypt. Shishak could have come back again. He could have used a pagan king that was already under the judgment of God for a whole series of other things. But Asha was never commanded by Yahweh to do this. He was never given permission by the prophet. Yahweh never told him to do it. And when Baasha did it, he did it for his own glory. His own accomplishments. And he massacred everyone. And that is murder. And when you're murdering an entire family and exterminating them for your own power and your own glory and God never told you to do it, it doesn't matter whether you fulfill the prophecy or not. You're evil. He is judged for this. It happened to fulfill the prophecy because God knew what was going to come and God wanted the Faust to be wiped out. But remember, God could have used anybody and anybody could have done it. And so Baasha is punished for the way that he goes about and does it. And we know he is because the prophet, literally, the narrator tells you this. And that is huge. Just because, now listen, this is so important to understand. Just because it is Yahweh's will that something happens, just because it may be a prophecy, does not mean that you have the right to take it upon yourself and make it happen. Remember, the whole point of the Bible is submission to the ultimate king of Yahweh. And in the garden, Adam and Eve were literally given power over all creation. Yet they still had to submit to the word and the authority of Yahweh. Saul was given all power, but he was not allowed to do whatever he wanted. And David got it. When he sinned, he humbled himself and he surrendered himself. And no matter how many times he messed up, he still ultimately submitted himself and humbled himself to the total sovereignty of Yahweh. And Baasha had no right to take upon himself to do this. Unless God tells you to do it, you have no right to fulfill that. The second thing is, too, is that this isn't a good thing. Yahweh is not saying, I prophesy that I'm going to bless you with lots of fertility and land. He's prophesying the destruction of a house by the hands of evil. He's saying, basically, I'm backing off. Remember, okay? He says, I'm backing off. You're going to be judged. I'm going to give you over into your own lifestyle. Now, remember Romans. Because they pursued idolatry and sexual immorality, God gave them over into that. And if you are participating in these horrible, evil sins, and God gives you into it, and somebody comes along and joins you in that evil sins, nobody here would say, that person who is a homosexual is of God. Because they decide to fulfill the prophecy by helping that homosexual go into their sins deeper and deeper and deeper. So they're from God. No one would say that, right? That's what Baasha did. God is giving Jeroboam over into his evil desires of death and massacre and allowing that to happen to him just as he did to other people. But because Baasha is the one who volunteers the massacre does not mean that he's of God. 
So even though God said it would happen, it doesn't mean the person who's making it happen is of God. And just because God said it was happened doesn't mean that anybody has the right to take it upon themselves and say, I'm going to fulfill God's word, unless they're actually called by God. And God takes it so seriously that he's going to judge Baasha with the same judgment that came on Jeroboam. Because he massacred an entire family. And even though the judgment for this sin is death, it's still, you don't want to be the one who fulfills the massacre. And it would be no different than when he says to Israel, or when he says to Babylon, I want you to come in and punish Israel. And Babylon comes in and massacres everybody for their own glory, their own gain, and their own evilness. And God says, now I'm going to punish Babylon for the way that they went about it. God can use anything that he wants. He can use the evil in the world to accomplish his will. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. But that does not mean that he approves of the evil. He's just that sovereign over creation. And something, and I know, like, we like everything cut and dry and black and white, and this makes for a very difficult sermon on a Sunday morning. But how many times have we come across that in the Bible as we've been going from Genesis to now? God is not easily boxed. And he is a very complex God to figure out. And Paul R. House says this, Besides providing information on Baasha's death, these verses, chapter 16, 5 through 7, re-emphasize the author's theological approach to history. Three issues deserve mention. First, God's word dictates history, a fact that Jehu's prophetic rebuke and prediction divulges. So it's not our actions that dictates history, it's God's word. Second, Jeroboam and Baasha are judged unfavorably because they used their God-given political authority to preserve their own position rather than to glorify God among the people. So they are judged unfavorably because they used the prophecy to justify their own power, their own gain, not for the glory of God. Third, the text stresses cause and effect, not fatalistic determinism meaning that you have to do this because the universe or God has made you do it. God gives both Jeroboam and Baasha the opportunity to follow the covenant. Baasha eliminates Jeroboam's family, as God said would happen, yet becomes like Jeroboam, which makes him a murderer, not a reformer. So even though he's wiping out a pagan family, he made the choice to wipe them out for his own glory and his own power, which makes him not a reformer, but a murderer. And so both are prophesied that this will happen, but both are given the free choice to make their decision and follow the covenant of God. Because once again, if they had chosen to follow the covenant of God and be obedient to him, then God could have used anybody to fulfill his prophecy. And most likely, he probably had in mind to use someone who was not a part of the chosen people of God to fulfill his prophecy like Aram or Assyria or Babylon, people who are already under the judgment of God for previous sins, rather than people who are chosen by God who put themselves under the judgment of God for doing this sin. 